Welcome to Closer to the Phenotype, a podcast where scientists discuss and debate new discoveries in published research with a focus on the use of metabolomics to drive multiomics forward. Each episode, we'll discuss a recent publication and dive into the research with a scientific expert or two. I'm your host, Bobby Wiggs. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about three papers. That's a first for this podcast. The first one is Integrated Non-Targeted Ultra-High Performance Liquid Chromatography. The second one is Categorizing Iron Features in Liquid Chromatography. And the third one is High-Resolution Max Spectrometry Improves Data Quality and, and Quantity. All three of these papers are by the same author, Dr. Annie Evans of Metabolon. And today I'm joined by Dr. Evans and Kenny Anderson, Director of Strategic Marketing at Metabolon. Thank you guys for joining us today. So we'll start with introductions. Annie, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, yeah, Annie Evans. Uh, I am, uh, I think I was the 12th employee at Metabolon. I've been with the company for almost 16 years. I think it'll be 16 years in August. Um, and I am the Director of Research and Development here. And Kenny? Yeah, Bobby, this is Kenny Anderson. I'm the uh, Director of Strategic Marketing at Metabolon, kind of on the other end of the spectrum from from Annie. So uh, having been with uh, with the organization for less than a year, uh, newer to metabolomics, so being able to focus on some of the technology uh, in the three papers you mentioned has been, uh, uh, as you can imagine, quite useful for me. So Annie, um, would you go ahead and give us a quick overview? I know there's three papers here, so you know we're not looking to fully understand all of them. Can you give us a quick overview of sort of the scope and, and what these three papers are about. Yeah, so the first paper was uh, analytical chemistry from 2009. Um, Metabolon started running uh, commercial samples in 2004. And, you know, we really didn't know if metabolomics was going to work that well back in 04, right? It was really new technology. Were we going to be able to do it at a commercial scale? And then by 2005, or excuse me, by 2009, five years later, it was like, this works. This is crazy great. And so we, we decided we really needed to publish on it at that point. So that 2009 paper was really Metabolon's founding technology. It was our first really commercial product. Um, it was our full like version of the library, how we did our informatics approach. It was really meant to be soup to nuts, sort of how we handled our collection of metabolomics data. Um, and so it was really foundational. We've, we've every you know, every publication, I think, or every client um, report we've ever sent out refers back to that original founding manuscript. The second one, which is this ion features manuscript, was really an assessment. Um, what we know about mass spec data is that there's just a tremendous amount of, for lack of, lack of a better word, it's called noise in the data. A single molecule produces a tremendous amount of features, right? But they're all just redundant measurements of the same compound. And we really wanted to understand the scope and the scale of just how many of these features that we were detecting are really these redundant um, ion features. So the ion feature paper is just this really in-depth analysis of how many of them are sodium addicts, how many of them are how many of them are, are ammonium addicts? How many of them are dimers, in-source fragments, so forth and so forth? And then the third paper is, um, as the technology, um, the hardware, the actual hardware of the technology that we use, namely the, the liquid chromatography systems and the mass spec systems, they really improved. We've been running for over 15 years, right? The technology has also upgraded in that time. And so 
um, when we moved our technology from low-res mass spectrometry to high-res accurate mass mass spectrometry, we wanted to sort of re-show the data that can be found. So that's that, that third paper, which is really an assessment of what accurate mass can give you within a small molecule space. Excellent. So I'm going to kick off with, uh, with some questions. And actually, Annie, I'm going to go to your middle paper. So what, what's the middle paper in turn terms of chronology, which is the ion features paper. And I had a, I had a question straight off the bat. Is this really, uh, to your knowledge, the first uh, published account of an amalgam in mass spec data? It is actually. And I, let me start back up a little bit, but we call them amalgams. I don't think they're still really well understood in mass spectrometry data. I don't see other people referring to them very often. And the one time I did hear about it was fairly recently. It was on a, a seminar, and I wish I could remember who gave the seminar, but they had mentioned that they had run down this huge rabbit hole and ultimately only realized that it was an amalgam, and they didn't call it amalgam. So I feel like there is this sort of ion feature out there that is getting in people's biological way, uh, making them think they've got some new interesting peak or new interesting compound, when it's in fact just a mass spectrometry artifact. Um, but yeah, I think this was the first time I have, that I know of, that it was actually written in, 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 and published. So no one else is seeing this, this combination, or at least publishing about this combination of uh, addition of two metabolites, essentially, right? Yeah, and I just I don't know how much people know it occurs. People know a lot about you know addicts like a sodium addict or a potassium addict, and they talk about those things a lot within mass spectrometry data. Um, but I don't often see people referring to this type of ion feature, which again we call an amalgam, which is again when two t separate molecules because they happen to be co-eluding off a column at the same time and entering the mass spec source at the same time, they kind of, they associate together and ionize as a molecule that looks like a legit new molecule. And it really only occurs where the two molecules co-elute. So you won't even get perfect co-elution with either species. So it can be really hard to figure out what it is, but it's totally a mass spec artifact. Great. Kenny, do you have a, do you have a question? Any questions for Annie? Not so much a question, uh, just more of a, an observation of something that became uh, immediately obvious to me as as I was going into and getting through the early parts of the paper that you know not all metabolomics technologies or platforms are created equal. So I, I imagine there's a lot of different trade-offs that you need to consider when when choosing a technology platform or a way forward. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about that. So Annie, can you can you tell me? I guess in 2009, as you guys were setting this up and you were running through this, why, why did you pick, you know, there are different ways to do metabolomics. Why was it that you were using the uh, UPLC and uh, the mass spec? Why didn't you use NMR? Why didn't you use something else? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. I think so many of us uh, in today, we think about like, oh, metabolomics, it's been around forever. Yeah, of course you use mass spectrometry. That's how you get the best coverage. But back in those days, it really wasn't so well known. I mean, I remember it was funny when I first started the hot debate in the metabolomics community is, are we going to call it metabolomics or are we going to call it metabonomics with an N? And it was like this debate over what it was going to be. 
that's where we were, right? That's, that's, we couldn't even decide what terminology we were using for this technology that we were all, well, that, that several of us were utilizing. And absolutely, NMR um, was one of the options. And I, you know, I, this is probably a bit of ignorance on my part, but I feel like the metabonomics name was something that the, that was what the NMR folk people like, metabonomics. Um, but either way, there were these different technologies. Um, ultimately, we decided on the LCMS um, really because of sensitivity um, and uh, compound coverage. One of the fundamental issues with NMR is really sensitivity, right? So it has its benefits and it's a great technology, right? Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to knock NMR, but it does have sensitivity limitations. And so when you're trying to do metabolomics or the profiling of all of these molecules in a biological system, having a technology who's at its fundamental base is limited in sensitivity was really an issue. Um, and so right from the start, we, we decided we wanted to do liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry. And UHPLC at the time, again, when we first, first started, we actually didn't even have UHPLC. We had LC systems. And again, an upgrade in the technology was to ultra high pressure. And what that gave you was sharper peaks uh, better defined peaks. And so you could, again, start resolving molecules that with standard chromatography, you couldn't separate, but with the UHPLC, you could. So it just gave you a better quality of data by moving to the UHPLC systems. So, you know, I really feel like these three papers, they really do tie together and there's a progression. You know, one of the things in the, the 2009 paper, you talk about the library. So, uh, you know, and I think this, the second paper the one about the, the ion data really highlights why you made that decision. But can you expound upon that a bit? Why, why early on before, even before 2012, when the other paper was published, why did you decide to not go an ion centric path? What, what sort of led you to that library path? Yeah. Um, I wish I could say that that was my decision. There was a few things I started in 04, like I said before. Um, and when I came the plan was to collect the data. Again, we had had a GCMS system back then. And that we would make our compound identifications by comparing to the NIST library, which was a publicly available library. So we had that established for the GC. And it was like, well, we need an LC library. And there wasn't one in existence. But we all felt pretty confident that, gosh, we really wanted to have that authentic standard library similar to something like NIST would offer. And again, at the time, it just wasn't in existence. And so we started that process of simply purchasing authentic standards and developing and, 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 and establishing that library. Um, again, at the time, there wasn't a lot of discussion about the fact that the way we were doing it would provide the highest confidence identifications. It just wasn't something that was really discussed much in the community, but just as a scientist in-house, um, it was like, well, of course, that's how we're going to do it. There's all those isoforms. How are we going to know which one's isoleucine, which one's leucine, or which one of the seven hydroxybutyrates it is without an authentic standard library? So it really, it almost came naturally to us. And, and I think over time, as more and more scientists have got into the area of metabolomics because it's so exciting, they're seeing the same thing. Like if you want to have quality identifications, it's what you have to do. So, Andy, can I ask you a question there? Gosh, of course. If, if I'm so, if I'm understanding that correctly, then going back to the gas chromatography, there, there it was because you had this NIST library, you just kind of inherently had this chemocentric approach that was enabled. But when when doing uh, liquid chromatography, 
there was a, a giant void that needed to be filled. Yeah, I couldn't say it any better. You're absolutely right. Um, NIST was sort of that authentic standard library. Uh, the technology just enabled you to us to use that a little bit more, but there was this giant void. Um, again, most people doing metabolomics da- out back then were, you know, were more using NMR, were using GCMS. LCMS was a fairly new technique to metabolomics um, at that time. So there, there was just, there was no other way to do it um, when we mm. first started. So we had to come up with you know, we had to come up with all of these strategies to be able to do what we wanted to do. And it's interesting because we end up, or at least I have in some of the early conversations that I've had with researchers of, you know, just trying to understand this ion centric approach versus a chemocentric approach. And it's the chemocentric approach is one that was kind of in pre-existence if you look at it through a gas chromatography lens. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I feel like so much of my existence at Metabolon, and I, you know, I hope this doesn't sound terrible, is really about, has been about education, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even that ion feature manuscript, it's about education. It was like, holy cow, look how many of these features are in no way helping us move biological insight forward because those peaks are just redundant measurements of the same compound. I didn't know that when we first started. I thought, oh, yeah, I see a signal. I see a peak. That's a new molecule. Yay, that's exciting. Look how many we're seeing. And then only as we we got into it, we were learning. And it was like, holy, you know, no, that's that's just a chlorine addict or that's just a sodium addict. And it was so profound that we really felt like this is this is something we need to educate. So we published on it, you know, and, and that's what we've been continually doing is you know, we're at the forefront um, of so many things within metabolomics. You know, right now our 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 uh, focus is on okay. So now we know all these molecules, but what do they mean biologically? How do we take that next big step into understanding how to take this breadth of information and helping investigators? What does that mean to your science? How does that enlighten your knowledge of what's going on in your system? So that's, you know, pathway analysis and all of these, you know, machine learning techniques to really go that next step. But it's because we've been through all of these other like hurdles over the years that allows us to get to this next challenge in the pipeline. Right. So, I mean, it's pretty exciting. We're always learning. We're always finding new challenges, but there's always a new hurdle to get over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was one of the one of the biggest takeaways for me for, as I read through um, maybe largely the, the 2009 kind of foundational paper, but all of them, uh, I gained a, a, a growing and increasingly, as I read, uh, appreciation for just how much, you know, the the ion features have and the numbers of them have less and less to do with what you're actually observing and detecting and more importantly, identifying. And, and, can I, can I, can I tack onto that? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Annie? And, and the, the challenges that come with that. So you talked a lot about how how many ion features people were seeing and and how many ion features were I won't say junk, but not not the molecules of interest. So can you talk a bit more about the noise and what that generates, and then sort of what a chemocentric approach gives you that you're not getting out of that ion feature approach? Yeah. So maybe maybe it'd be helpful just to back up a bit. So the ion feature approach, or what we sort of have deemed the ion feature approach, is where every 
every peak is sacred, right? So every mass, every peak you detect is ultimately assumed to be an actual molecule, right? So from the very foundation of that workflow, you are already assuming, you are already taking a certain assumption about all of those molecules being, or all of those features being important. What Metabolon has done with a chemocentric report is from the foundational data say, you know what, I know that the bulk of these ion features are in fact not helpful at all. What I want to do at the very beginning is deconvolute all of those features and get to the chemical underneath that they represent. And what, we, what that means is to say, okay, look, here's phenylalanine. I know that phenylalanine has a sodium addict, an ammonium addict, a dimer, and it has an in-source fragment, and it has all of its isotopes. So phenylalanine has something like 25 features that it produces, but those 25 features are not they are all 25 redundant measurements of phenylalanine. So when you think about biologically, those 25 other features are noise and they're in fact getting in the way. Um, and how they're getting in the way is, is really in two ways. The first is that if you don't correctly, uh, um, how do I say this? If you look at something like the in-source fragment of phenylalanine, from the ion feature workflow, that looks like a brand new novel molecule, right? How do you know it's the in-source fragment of phenylalanine. You don't, right? So they say, oh, I see this new biological molecule. Yeah, it happens to correlate with phenylalanine. It's another biomarker for, you know, this disease, when in fact it's not. It is just an in-source fragment of phenylalanine. Um, and so you get a tremendous amount of misidentifications a number of years ago now, and we never published on this, so you'll have to take my word for this. We actually mocked up a sort of ion-centric workflow um, and then compared it to our workflow just to get a sense of, you know, time it takes to process that many features and all of those sort of things. And we were staggered by the number of misidentifications. I think the number we came up with was something like 80 to 90% of the features were misidentified. Um, you know, something like a sodium addict. Well, that's a bad example. An ammonia addict was, was labeled as aminoglucose instead of just being oh, that's just the ammonium addict of glucose, or that's the in-source fragment of uridine, and it identified it as some other molecule. And some of my favorite examples of that ion feature workflow is they search it against a public database, right? And public databases are full of just like hypothetical compounds, but not molecules you're actually going to detect in the average human. So one of the identifications that we got out of that workflow was that every human being had a toxic metabolite present in muscles from underwater, you know, seas, whatever. And it was like, no, no, every human does not have this toxic muscle metabolite, you know, like the muscles, the clam looking things like, no, that's just not real. But that's the, the real challenges of that workflow is you're trying to identify every feature as a molecule when fundamentally that's just a, a, a incorrect approach. You got to like get past the fact that you see that peak and say, what does it belong to? What chemical does it belong to? So that's, that's the differentiation between the two. That's a bit long winded, but that, that's the differentiation between the two. What about the, you know, so what about false discovery in terms of P value, right? Does oh gosh, I totally forgot about that. Was my other problem? Yeah, I was like, I was like, wait a second. She didn't. She didn't answer my false discovery question. Sorry, I said there was two big challenges, and then I only gave you one of the big challenges. So one of the big challenges is misidentification. The other challenge is false discovery rate. Right. So a sort of 
fundamental property of mass spectrometry, right, is false discoveries. The more measurements you send, send into statistics, you know, the more of those are going to be false discoveries based on like a whatever, whatever cutoff you set, say a 5% false discovery rate. So that means if you send every ion feature you detect, and it's in, in our analysis, we detect, um, you know, 150,000 peaks in a single sample. So now you're talking about sending 150,000 peaks into stats um, to say, okay, well, tell me stats, what was statistically significant in this study? Um, and so you get, you know, 5,000 statistically significant peaks on the back end. And, um, you know, a lot of those are, you know, those are, those are your false discoveries. If you can first do the deconvolution, i.e. associate the ion fissures to the molecule, now you only are saying, oh, actually, this is only a thousand molecules instead of 150,000 peaks, now you're only sending a thousand molecules into statistics. So your false discovery, your number of molecules that are pure false discoveries is really a lot lower. So you're going to run into less statistical issues, less misidentifications, less running down the rabbit hole, right, of bad information just a result of your informatics workflow. So thank you for reminding me that there were, in fact, there was, in fact, a, a second a second disadvantage there related to the false discovery. As a reminder, you're listening Closer to the Phenotype. I'm your host, Bobby Wiggs, and today I'm joined by Annie Evans and Kenny Anderson. You know, Bobby, that, you know, listening to Annie kind of talk about, um, you know, some of the bioinformatics and the statistical you know, portion of that, I mean, that one of the points that I thought was important that I had written down here, uh, and it's just kind of a general point, but, you know, from from what my role and what my job is kind of thinking about, you know, not only how to market the value of, of you know, what Metabolon does, but, you know, metabolomics in general, and just kind of going through and understanding the technology better and the different approaches that you can take with the fundamental application of different technologies and different types of instrumentation. I mean, there were several points in in reading, you know, not just that foundational paper, but, you know, all three of them. Of where there were um, where we had kind of made choices to move away from the standard vendor supplied software, for example. And then, you know, as you kind of carry that forward, the method, you know, increasingly becomes a bit more unique and, and you start to rely a little bit more on institutional knowledge that, you know, that you specifically bring on top of the technology. And I think a lot of what you talked about, Annie, um, it's probably, I don't know, you, you can tell me, but that's a large component of being able to, you know, avoid those, um, I guess, missteps and misidentifications and things of that nature. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I wish I could say that, you know, going into this, we sort of, we foresaw that that was going to be the right approach. It's like, no, we slammed, we hit our face into the ground and we were like, ouch, well, that sucked. Um, and so we had to find a solution, right? Um, it's just that we were doing this, you know, starting in 2000 where we were, you know, running into those problems and trying to find those solutions. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, very early on there, like you said, the instrument software, there was no uh, software for small molecule identification when we first started. There were no vendors of that type of analysis. So we had to code all of our own peak integration software, all of our own library storage and 
I, all of it was 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 done by us. Even the sort of what we call curation process, which is the process of process of QCing the peaks that we're seeing, you know, and making sure that we think they were integrated well and that the identifications are are high quality. That didn't exist, you know, mm-hmm. um, at, mm-hmm. even in its even in any sense of it back then. So it, it, we had to rely on our own, you know, just. Our, we have an incredible software software team at Metabolon that, you know, just that's what they did. We work with them so closely and we were like, okay, here's what I need to do. I need to know how these peaks were integrated by the system. Help me look at that. And we worked together and we designed interfaces. And I mean, it was challenging, but incredibly rewarding work as well. Yeah. And that's been an ongoing rapid iteration process every bit. Of, oh, every over and over and over yeah. again. Yeah. With every new technology. So while we're, while we're on the subject of technology, how did you, I guess, so we, I see a continuum here, right? So you, you're going from sort of a UPLC with a, with a non, um, non-accurate mass high spec, uh, mass spec, excuse me. And then you move in and you end up in 2014 in this paper, you have accurate mass. So... How did you make those evaluations? How do you make those evaluations now? And how do you sort of decide where you're headed and what what technologies you're going to use? And then do you compare multiple vendors? Do you compare different technologies at the time? How do you how do you make those decisions? And and how did that drive you from the 2009 paper to the 2014 paper? Yeah, it's funny. My passion has always been the technology. Um, you know, coming out of graduate school, um, I loved mass spectrometry. That was what all my graduate work was in. Um, but it was always about understanding. And even in my graduate work, I was part of development of new instrumentation. So sort of knowing that mass spectrometry and liquid chromatography are technologies that are constantly improving. As head of R&D, one of the best things I get to do is to watch that and constantly evaluate, all right, at what point does the technology get to uh, the hardware t- technology get to a point where it's like, okay, yes, this is so beneficial to this, to our understanding of biology that it is time to do this. So we did that when we were looking between LC and UHPLC, right? Basically, we we would test the systems. Um, so back then it was, uh, I can't even remember what LC system we were using, but we went to a Waters UPLC system. You know, we got a demo unit in, we kicked it, we kicked it around and, and put it through its paces and really were able to see like, wow, I can, I can double the number of compounds I can detect by moving to this else new LC system. And the same thing when the accurate mass technology came around. Now, I will say that accurate mass technology and mass spectrometry has been around for a very, very long time, but the instruments were incredibly difficult to maintain. They were really very sort of research academic instruments. They weren't commercially very viable. And I can say that with absolute confidence because I tried to run some of those when I was in graduate school and they took a lot of work to keep going. What really moved us into looking at accurate mass was like, we know the benefits of accurate mass because again, any signal is signal to noise. What accurate mass allows you to do is dial way down on the noise, right? So your signals just look bigger because your noise is smaller. So we knew accurate mass would have massive benefits. Um, Well, no, we hoped it would have massive benefits in terms of allowing us to detect more compounds. And it did. Doing that allowed us to double the number of named compounds, which again, Bobby, you were doing some of this with me at the time. 
Like we were predicting like, oh, we'll probably see 20, 30% more compounds. None of us were protecting, uh, were, you know, thinking double the number of compounds. But again, it's, you, 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 you get the instrument in the lab, in the lab, you, you run it, you, you see what you can do with it. Um, and ultimately you're looking for sensitivity, robustness. We run 120,000 samples a year. If I have to baby an instrument in order to keep its mass, its mass, um, accurate or its sensitivity, it's, it's just not, a, it's not an option for this technology. So it had to have just the right combination of really, robust, rugged user, um, you know, usability um, to be able to be put into place. And, and luckily that, that technology came to fruition and we were able to put it in place. I do remember that. Yeah. Remember like we were like, Oh sure. 30% more compounds. And then we were all like, Oh my God, there's double the amount of data here. And it was a good problem to have, but at the time that was a lot of extra data to deal with. I have I have a basic question that probably be quick to answer that truly just for my own understanding. I mean, ideally we talk about metabolomics being completely unbiased. Um, and I can't remember what paper it was, but I had written down on my notes here, Annie, that, you know, as soon as you start putting a technique into practice to deliver metabolomics, as you start making decisions, you naturally introduce bias. Um, so I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, with the with the the technology that we describe in the papers, how would you speak to whether or not there is any bias and to what degree? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I again, this was another one of those debates when we always used to always used to call it like unbiased analysis of this, and we were called out on that to say just like what you were pointing out, Kenny, that. You're like, no, it's not unbiased. What are you kidding me? You're using a mass spectrometer. That mass spectrometer has a specific ionization source. Not all molecules can ionize using that specific ionization source. So you can't say it's unbiased because it's biased towards molecules that can ionize. And it was like, you are absolutely correct. You, I mean, you totally called me on it. Um, it is not unbiased. It absolutely has biases. Um, the One of the primary ones being what I just mentioned, ionization. Mass spectrometry requires that a, an ion be, or a compound can form an ion so that the, the, the mass spectrometer can move it into the body of the mass spec and detect it. If it's not an ion, a, a mass spec can't do anything with it. So there absolutely are biases um, in what we do. Um, you know, and I think it's it's not necessarily a limitation, but it certainly is a humbling, like, uh, you know, realization that, yeah, we can't detect every small molecule. Uh, we detect as many of them as we can with the technology, and we chose the technology to try to, you know, basically as efficiently as we can detect as many, but there are compounds we can't detect. Um, and there are, you know, there are, uh, you know, areas of science that I wish we had better coverage of, but we... We just can't because we are reliant upon these particular functions mm -hmm. of the technology. Um, you know, one of the ones I always think about is very early on, we, we had a lot of discussion about whether we would do um, what's called headspace uh, chromatography, which is being able to analyze really volatile molecules. So this is types of stuff that's used in, you know, wine tasting analyses and you know, these molecules that basically they, they are what make things smell good. They are the aroma, the taste. 
but the technology that you need to put into place to be able to capture those are it's it's intensive like nobody can wear perfume nobody you can't have you know there just can be no ambient air that's out of control and so we're very on we're like gosh it would be great to have those volatiles you know dogs can sniff out that a person has cancer versus not by smell we know that these can be in molecules that are could be interesting and diagnostic but the technology that it would take to do that is just you know it's a bit beyond what we're interested in getting into so yeah as a scientist back to that balancing act right yeah it's that balancing act again exactly do i want it yes and no because i don't want to have to set up a lab that can do that so but it's, it is, it's a really good point to bring up. Bias is everywhere. So I was going to ask you, and actually ties in pretty well to that because you, you're talking about other technologies. Have we reached the limits of what physics is possible? I mean, I, I do think, you know, in some ways the, uh, the accurate mass, you know, we're, we're at the edge of, of physics, right. In terms of, um, how fast it can measure, how accurately it can measure and, and what we're putting into it. So where do you see the technology going? So will there be, you know, will there be another paper? Will I have the, the 2024 paper to go with the 2014 paper? And, and where, what is your prediction of where this technology is headed? First of all, I hope so. <laughs> um, I, my, my passion is the technology. And I think there are people way more intelligent than I are and than I am working on these things, right? Um, You can always make a mass spectrometer scan faster, right? And that will be needed. Um, We are hoping to make a mass spectrometer even more sensitive yet, right? So um, especially in sort of uh, global type analyses, right? You can make an instrument more sensitive if you're really targeting a specific molecule, but how can we really bring up sensitivity in these sort of global scans? I think we've got areas uh, to improve there. But the thing I think I'm most excited about in terms of things that will really take metabolomics to the next step is really being able to eliminate chromatography without limiting the ability to detect all those molecules. And we're not there yet. We are definitely not there yet in terms of the technology. But what I'll say is right now, chromatography is definitely the biggest rate limiting step the biggest challenge in terms of reproducibility, the biggest challenge in terms of quality control and making sure everything went well is all related to the chromatography. So ultimately, my dream will be that the systems will come along, the technologies will come along that will allow us to either greatly reduce our need for that chromatographic resolution um, or eliminate it entirely. Um, I think it, it would it would just be revolutionary to be able to do that. We would have increased speed, um, you know, more ruggedness. Just talk, thinking about moving into the clinic um, is you can remove chromatography. It becomes much more implementable in every hospital um, so that metabolomics, you know, real metabolomics screening and profiling all of these metab- metabolites in a single individual and comparing it to a healthy population suddenly becomes a lot more doable. So that's where I would love to see this technology go. And we'll see if we get there. You know, there are technologies on, you know, on the radar that are hopeful of getting us there, but we're definitely not there yet. But again, in the 15 years, the 20, God, when did I get my my doctor? In the 20 years or so since I've been a doctor, um, there's been 
a breathtaking improvement um, in the technology and the instrumentation. So, I, you know, 20 years from now, it's going to look radically different than it looks today. It'll be really interesting to see not only what the future holds for the technology, but also the capabilities that come along with it. That's all the time we have this week for Closer to the Phenotype. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank Dr. Evans and Kenny for joining us this week, and we'll see you guys next time. That's it for this week's episode of Closer to the Phenotype, brought to you by Metabolon, where scientists discuss and debate recent publications while illuminating the future of multiomics research. If you love the show, please rate us on iTunes so that we can continue to deliver amazing episodes. You can also visit our website, metabolon.com, to subscribe and never miss an episode. While there, check out our other resources like ebooks and webinars that expand on some of our more than 2,000 publications. You can also follow us on social media at LinkedIn and Twitter. If you have an idea for the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at podcast at metabolon.com. That's M-E-T-A-B-O-L-O-N.com. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Bobby Wiggs, inviting you to tune in next time. And I'd like to extend a special thank you to Chad Crouch for Algorithms, the intro and outro music. Thank you.